Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I am Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajahata Lee. And today we are excited because we are going to talk about possibly, you know, the thing that Wajahat and I have been talking about and opining about for weeks, months, if you think about it, whether or not Merrick Garland will do his job and will begin prosecuting the case against Donald Trump. Waj, we are joined by someone fabulous uh, that you know that you brought to all of us. And I know that folks are going to be excited to hear from because they hear from him like I do at least 16 times a day (laughs) on MSNBC. But please do the honors. We are here with the fabulous Neil Katyal, former acting solicitor general of the United States and currently professor at Georgetown University, who argues cases regularly in front of the Supreme Court as often as I take my kids to Dave and Buster's to play arcade games. (laughs) And I'm very grateful that today he has joined us proletariat and is not wearing a suit and tie. Uh, Thank you, Neil, for joining us. Uh, You wrote this fantastic New York Times article recently, came out uh, January 14th, about the future criminal case against Donald Trump. So I want to get right into it. Uh, We're still processing the hearings, right? Uh, We just witnessed the hearing recording this on Wednesday. Yesterday was an emotional bombshell. Uh, Specifically, we saw the the testimony of Wandrea Moss and her mother, two uh, election workers who detailed how they were targeted by Donald Trump, threatened, are currently traumatized. Uh, We're seeing Republicans themselves talk about death threats to their family. We saw the audio tape of Brad Raffensperger. We listened to it, excuse me, the Secretary of Georgia of State, where Donald Trump said, find me the votes. And your analysis, just based on what you have seen so far from the hearings, what has really stood out for you? Uh, well, thank you, Waj. And first, before getting into your question, I just want to thank you for having me on. Um, I think I met you about six or seven years ago at an Aspen Institute event, and that was, and I adored you then. And obviously, you went through an incredible tragedy with um, your daughter Nubia. And they, you, I think not Nubia, that's her name. Nuseba. Nuseba. Um, uh, and uh, in the years since, and a gift that. Um, I think has moved all of us who read the story of this donor. And um, it's just, it's really, you're an incredibly moving person. And to have all that happen, have you come out and your family on the other side is just um, 
It makes me so happy. So, I, I will um, Venmo you the money. You have done your job, Neil. But what I will say, and I hope people don't mind, and hope you especially don't mind, because I haven't shared this with anyone except my wife. Uh, when we were going through that, uh, you know, the the stage four cancer of my daughter, who's now healthy, just took her, I just went took her to the doctors. All the tests came out negative. She, you know, she's yeah. dancing. She's got curls in her hair. Mm. She's about to turn six. But when we were going through that about three years ago, and she, you know, is a stage four cancer survivor who needed a full liver transplant, uh, I had to take like a year and a half off. If anyone has been through this, I hope you never have to go through this. But that's what happens in this country, that even when you are educated and lucky and privileged like us and, and um, you know, are, have money, you still need more money. And Neil, on his own, mm -hmm. stepped up proactively without me asking and said, hey, man, however much you need, I'll lend you the money. You're good for it. So I just want people to know that Neil did that. I didn't wow. take him up on it, but wow. uh, he proactively approached me and said, whatever you need, I'll give it to you. I know you're good for it. Pay me back anytime you want. So I just want the world to know that Neil did that. Oh, yeah, wow. but th th that's nothing. I mean, what to me really moves me is is this donor, because, you know, to do that is like what a gift and you know, it's got surgery for the donor and losing part of his own liver. I mean, anyway, I just find it so moving. Um, to, to jump into your question, um, I wrote this piece on June 14th in the New York Times, basically saying that there was developed by the committee evidence that really very strongly supported a criminal case against Donald Trump. And, um, <clears throat> uh, you know, I think we already knew that before the hearings. There's a federal, very highly respected federal judge in California, Judge Carter, uh, who said that the evidence more likely than not shows that Donald Trump personally committed mm. various felonies. But the hearings have developed it. And just to jump into what you were saying about the hearing yesterday, I mean, to me, the key thing that was developed in yesterday's hearing, um, what the, which was the third hearing, was the committee's evidence that Donald Trump directly was involved in the fake electors plot. You know, before that, the prior two hearings were about Trump knowing what he was doing was illegal, Trump having fantasies about winning the election when everyone told him he lost and he was willfully blind to that. But yesterday, there was evidence shown that Donald Trump was actively manipulating local governments after the election. So it starts with him calling the Republican National Committee chair, Arona McDaniel, and outlining, outlining this fake electors plot to her. And then Trump even goes so far as to put John Eastman, who's kind of the legal architect of this you know, ridiculousness, um, uh, on the phone with the RNC chair. Um, and, you know, Eastman, you know, that same judge, Judge Carter, said Eastman's analysis was, quote, a coup in search of a legal theory. Mm -hmm. And I think that's actually kind of charitable. I mean, you know, we, the hearings have shown that uh, John Eastman gave up on the legal bit well before January 6th. But in any event, so you've got that picture of Trump. Um, and, you know, there's obviously a lot of evidence that the committee's developed against all these other people who were involved in this conspiracy. But to me, the key is Trump, because that's what the Justice Department is going to be looking at. What is the evidence against Donald Trump specifically? And I think that's what Donald Trump himself is looking at right now, because he's trying to set up this narrative that his subordinates, like John Eastman, were the ones who were behind all this. But of course, Trump is active. He's actively engaging Eastman. He's connecting the dots, putting Eastman with the RNC um, and the like. Um, so that was one big piece to me. The other, and you mentioned it, Georgia Secretary of State Raffsenberger, who's a Republican, 
and who portrays Donald Trump in the hearing as a malicious pusher of the lies personally. Not that Trump was leaving it to other people like Eastman, but doing it himself. And my favorite moment in the hearing was Rafsenberg saying, look, I called Trump. I told him I would send him a link to a video that debunked these claims of election fraud. And Donald Trump's reply was, quote, I have a much better link. You should watch that instead. Now, there are only two types of links I would ever expect from Donald Trump. One is him asking for money. And the other is the type that reminds me to update my antivirus software. Um, but, um, but Donald Trump was all into peddling this election nonsense. He was the peddler in chief. That's what the hearings to me showed um, and why I don't think Merrick Garland has any real choice mm. but to uh, indict. From The New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that forced David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities. Healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country. Immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun. And candidates in states with razor thin margins. Listen to Build the Change Now wherever you get your podcasts. You know, one of the problems that I have right now is that we are 17 months removed from the insurrection. And these hearings are happening a handful of months before midterm elections. And I know that the Justice Department doesn't work on our political cycle. The reality is that Merrick Garland, you know, on the anniversary of the insurrection, told the American people that he was going to follow the evidence. He was going to go where things took him. Can you explain to us, Neil, why it has taken this long? And if, in fact, these hearings, because, again, I am a person who is pretty cynical uh, in comparison to Waj, I'm, and I think that that's probably taking it lightly, um, why it's taken this long, why they were able to put together, for instance, a task force to take down Russian oligarchs, and there was not the same task force, or at least announced, to put together to take down the architects, the funders, the donors of this insurrection. Why, why do I see or feel such imbalance in yeah. how things are moving? 
Yeah, so I think it's a great question. And I think it comes down a lot to Merrick Garland. And I, I'm someone who actually does have a lot of faith in him. He's brilliant. He's really careful. He's like the opposite of the jokers who ran the Justice Department for the last four years. And the last thing we want is to take some of their you know, modus operandi and put it into the Garland Justice Department. So it's a good thing to me that we're not hearing leaks from the Justice Department on, oh, they've got a criminal case against Trump or they got a criminal case against, you know, whomever, um, you know, Mark Meadows or whatever. I think that's a great thing that the Justice Department is doing its work the way it's supposed to in a high level criminal investigation, which is to do it, uh, you know, behind the scenes until there's an indictment. Now, Garland has said, you know, he's got nobody high or low is going to be removed from, you know, the criminal look that he's going to give to everyone involved with January 6th. Um, and, you know, that's pretty much all I think we can expect from him to say now. It's also complicated because you have two investigations. You have something going on with the Justice Department. We don't know exactly what that is. And then you have a separate investigation going on in Congress. Um, one of the things I tried to write about in the New York Times article was, well, why would it be that we haven't had the Justice Department moving in the year and a half, as you know, mm-hmm. all your questions about? And one theory may be that Garland decided, look, Congress was going to investigate, and you know, it was an attack on their soil, their people, it's their Capitol Police, and so on. Of course, they're going to have to investigate. Maybe Garland decided, let them investigate first, go first. And then I'll pick up the file afterwards. And we've seen some signs that actually that may be what's going on because the Justice Department has made a a high level request for documents, all documents from Congress, which is what you'd expect if this theory I floated in the Times um, is right. But we don't know for sure. Obviously, we all kind of want the show moving on the road. The Justice Department isn't hampered by the same November election Mm -hmm. deadline that you mentioned. Um, You know, obviously, if Congress changes hands I think, you know, the Republican Party doesn't seem interested at all in as a party in getting to the truth of what happened on January 6th. It's all cover up lies, innuendo and the like. So, you know, I think instead of investigating, you know, one of the most horrific uh, attacks on our nation and its capital in our history, we'll be investigating, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop and Benghazi for 24 hours a day. And banning books. You know, and, I, I and also stick with trying the, to impeach Biden. <laughs> oh, which Ted Cruz, by the way, already uh, said that they will do if the Republicans take the House. So they're already tipping off their hat and telling you that we're going to get investigations on Hunter Biden and impeachment of Joe Biden. Why? Who knows? But we'll see. But sticking with the Justice Department, Neil, uh, in your op-ed piece, you said that the audience, right, the audience for these hearings, uh, in addition to the American public, in, in addition to posterity and history, is the Justice Department. And in the article itself, you kind of give the Justice Department two ideas. And one of them is, you know, you can get Donald Trump uh, on obstruction of an official proceeding. Can you break that down for the audience? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and certainly I just want to be clear, it's not my idea. It's well in the ether. And in fact, it's one of the two crimes that the federal judge, uh, Judge Carter, flagged. And the Congressional Committee has already, Liz Cheney has gone on the airwaves and says, I think Donald Trump violated the statute 1512C, um, which says that if you conspire to obstruct, uh, to stop some sort of official proceeding, uh, that is a very serious federal felony. And one of the, I think the kind of paradigmatic official proceeding they had in mind was a court proceeding. Uh, You know, you're trying to stop 
a criminal trial from taking place or something like that. But the language, of course, is much broader intentionally to govern all official proceedings. And January 6th is obviously mm. one of the most solemn mm. official proceedings that the United States ever has, which is the idea that on that date, you take the electoral votes that have been sent up by the states, you open them up, you count them, and you declare a president. And what Donald Trump's strategy was to say, oh, instead of sending the actual slate of electors that different states had picked, um, we'll name some alternate electors, um, which isn't, of course, a thing. Alternate electors are like alternative facts. There's no such <laughs> thing. Um, but, <clears throat> but that was Trump's theory. And by sending this rando group of guys, and maybe a few women, probably not given it's Trump, but uh, that random slate of people to the Capitol, they'll open it and they'll have two rival ones. And then Vice President Pence can say, well, we're going to pick the randos as opposed to the people that were actually And the randos just coincidentally all happen to be Trump supporters. And we'll give exactly. the election to Trump. Just, just coincidentally. coincidentally. <laughs> Exactly, watch. And, and, you know, one of the things the hearing showed is that John Eastman, that legal architect behind this, he actually knew that the fake electors had no legal standing. That's in his emails. But he argued that their presence would create uncertainty about which results were legitimate. I have no idea where this uncertainty was supposed to come from. I mean, one set of electors is certified by the legislature. The other is a bunch of randos who haven't been. There's no uncertainty. It's like, you know, the show Billions. I am not uncertain. <laughs> nice. Um, you know, one of the other issues that we that we continue to see, right, is this pardon parade. Donald Trump was giving out pardons like they were, you know, Odd hot cakes. tickets to the latest the, the the latest club opening. Only if you're a Trump supporter, though. Right. right? So Dinesh D'Souza gets it, Bannon gets it, you know, Mike Flynn gets it. You know, it's it's all the rogues around him. But you know, like your, ordinary people like who yeah. needed pardons, right? You know. But yeah. yeah, exactly. What the president is actually supposed to do, which is pardon people that were wrongly incarcerated and tell us their stories and wrong, you know, make right what the Justice Department has done wrong. That was not the case, obviously. My question, though, is that it's clear, well, at least to me, and I want to know your opinion. As John Eastman was saying fifth, fifth, fifth over, you know, 150 times during uh, during his testimony, it's evident that he didn't get a pardon. Right. What, what do you what did you surmise from his extensive use of pleading the fifth and then just, you know, cutting that in half because that's how often he was going to say it? As opposed to Ivanka, Jared, Giuliani, who all didn't plead the fifth in their in their testimony before the the commission. Yeah, well, part of it may be that Jared and Ivanka have just grown up thinking that they're untouchable and the law will never apply to them. So there's a kind of hyper arrogance about them. There may be Eastman who didn't grow up with that kind of, you know, double silver spoon in his mouth, you know, doesn't have. Um, so that may be one rationale um, for it. Another may be that there's a secret set of pardons that Trump wrote out on a napkin and, you know, gave to them um, and only gave to Javanka and didn't give to Eastman. Um, it's certainly possible. I don't think a secret pardon will work in any event. I think the constraint on the pardon power is that it has to be public. Um, I don't think you can just do this in secret because 
um, I think the whole architecture of the Constitution is to say, you know, uh, the president is where we concentrate accountability and he has these massive suite of powers like the pardon power, but it's because he acts with the eyes of the nation upon him. And so if you can eliminate that and permit secret action of such grave consequence, I think you undo what the limited government and separation of powers is about. I want to do a call back to the first hearing where one of the biggest bombshells was that the Republicans, who we still don't know, were proactively seeking pardons after January 6th. And I'm very curious, number one, who are these Republicans who are proactively seeking pardons? And number two, you know, I'm a recovering attorney, Neil. I haven't practiced for 10 years, but I'm assuming that if someone's seeking a pardon, they probably hmm. know they've done something wrong and criminal. And, and, and I'm very curious how far this conspiracy extends. And, and it brings me back to another point in your in your article, because we are talking about accountability and we are talking about we're hoping, inshallah, as we say, the Justice Department follows the evidence. Um, you also iterate, in, in addition to obstruction of justice, excuse me, obstruction of a, an official pr proceeding, you say in your piece that the Justice Department could also bring a seditious conspiracy charge against Trump. And just to remind people that Justice Department has done some work, specifically they've charged the Oath Keepers mm -hmm. and the Proud yep. Boys, these Proud two far-right violent groups, with seditious conspiracy. Uh, how could that be applied to Trump with what we know? Yeah, so um, with respect to seditious conspiracy, uh, it's a tough argument, which is what I said um, in the piece, because it requires actually intending violence or force. Um, and Trump may have a defense that says, look, I was engaged in a lot of shenanigans and I'm trying to create legal uncertainty with the fake electors and so on, but I didn't actually want violence. Um, and he probably did, is my gut, if you had to hook me up to a truth detector and ask what I think, um, you know, but... I think my belief and well, Neil. I'm sorry if I could just stop, pause you for one second. Sorry, sorry. Just, just for another bombshell from yesterday was that quote where apparently Mike Pence. He found out that Mike Pence was, uh, you know, they were 40 feet away from Mike Pence, the mob, and they were hunting him. And he said, "Well, maybe he deserves it." I mean, maybe is that, he, maybe no, maybe maybe they're right. May, is as that they're Chanting, hang, hang, hang Mike it Pence. Could be. It could be. So, you know, I want to, you know, as a, if, if we're going to make a criminal case out of it, if the, word, if the Justice Department is to make a criminal case out of it, I think it's got to be, you know, it's got to, it's got, that's got to be really nailed down with eyewitnesses um, and the like. Um, and it may be enough to, to do that. I mean, you've got a president who's maybe actively seeking the murder of his own vice president because he didn't, you know, do his bidding uh, on this bogus election theory. Um, on the other hand, you know, seditious conspiracy is a really hard charge to prove. And so, you know, my only point in the piece was to say there's another flavor of conspiracy, just straight out conspiracy to defraud the United States, um, which is easily applicable here um, because basically, you know, Trump was engineering fake electors slates to be sent um, with the hope of trying to bolster his case to be the president. And if you... Uh, you know, if you send a fake document, you know, fake W-2 or something like that to the IRS, you get thrown in jail. Um, it should be obviously no different when the consequences are not just individual tax ones, but ones that uh, really go to the heart of our democracy. Um, and I, I guess that's one of the things that really bothers me about the whole discussion, because, you know, if this were anyone else, 
Of course, this would be a criminal investigation. The right. person would be in jail. Right. I, mean, I just think about like, you know, why my parents came to this country from India. One of the main reasons was they saw a culture of people who get away with it at the top and that level of corruption. Bribery. And they could come here and, you know, you'd have the same rule book. It didn't matter. Nobody was above the law, high or low. I mean, one of my first memories with, with my parents was watching Nixon resign. And I remember my mom crying and, you know, and I asked her what was going on. She said, the president has resigned. And she was sad about the event. She wasn't particularly partisan. She was sad to think that, you know, that's happened, but also happy that it happened, mm -hmm. that in this country, even the president would be brought to justice. And I don't know how you run a justice system for 300 million Americans when you see Trump getting away with these grave crimes and people being locked up for the most minor things whatsoever in the rule book being thrown at them. You know, the, the, and I, I want to stay with that for a moment, because I, I will tell you that as, you know, uh, a, a black queer woman and child of immigrants in, in, in this country, you know, you we, we understand that there are multiple justice systems, right? Because what is applied to black and brown people, what is applied to poor people um, is not the same thing that is applied to powerful white wealthy men. And, you know, do you think that a part of these public hearings, which again, I don't understand why they're not all in prime time and happening in the afternoon or in the morning, but do you think that the point of them is to pressure the Justice Department to do what it is in your piece that you said, which is you have no choice because now the public, you, you, it has been aired out to the world just how criminal this president was. I don't think at all that it's the hearings are about pressuring the Justice Department. I do think it's about developing the facts, both for history and for the Justice Department to look at. But I don't think it's like a pressure thing. I think it's like, you know, they know uh, because of the course of their investigation, just how much stuff Trump did and the minions around him did. Um, and so I'm really proud of the committee for developing all of this factual record, and also demonstrating some of the human consequences, like the election workers who, you know, whose lives were threatened, and you know, by Trump. Um, I mean, you know, when I worked for President Obama, like, I mean, he was so careful to measure his words, like, and make sure that nothing he ever said could be taken by a bunch of, you know, crazy people to mean some exhortation to violence or whatever. There was such a level of care around that. And I don't think it's just true about that president. I don't think it's true about basically almost every president has done that throughout our history, just because the bully pulpit and the influence you have as president is just so, so mm. astounding with people hanging on every word. And here Trump actively called out the mob to do these kinds of things. So I'm is glad there, that... Go ahead. Just quick, quick jump in. Is there a possibility, like, is there another charge that is there, right? So you have seditious conspiracy, you have conspiracy to defraud the American public, but by virtue of listening to Miss uh, Lady Ruby yesterday, her daughter, the trauma, mm. right? The trauma that one, we already put black people in this country through, namely women, then to place a target by the president of the United States and what I refer to as the white supremacist in chief at that time on the backs of these two women, and then to hear about 
Raffensperger's daughter to hear about how these people have been actually harmed. And particularly the electors I'm focusing on, because guess what? They don't hold office, so they don't have security. They can't beef up security, you know, in the way that we have seen happen with other members, politicians that have been threatened, judges that have been threatened. And so is there another charge there? Yeah, 100 percent. So, you know, uh, you know, if I were writing the piece today as opposed to last week um, after the development, and this is where I think the committee was so effective. There is a charge, both because criminal comes in both flavors, criminal and civil. Mm. Um, the criminal one would be called incitement to violence. Mm-hmm. The civil one was also incitement, um, but it also could be defamation. And ordinarily, these prosecutions are very hard because of the First Amendment. You want public officials to be able to talk generally freely. You know, you, uh, otherwise they'll be sued left and right for anything they say. But here, there's an interesting twist because. Donald Trump is the guy who's actually suing other people for defamation, and he wants to get rid of all the First Amendment speech protective rules like actual malice for public figures and the like. And of course, these election workers, as you were saying, Danielle, are the opposite of public figures. So it's actually easier for them to sue because it's like these relatively weak people being Mm -hmm. targeted by the highest, most powerful person in the world. And... Um, you know, those are really good, at least civil cases and possibly criminal cases as well. I, I and know, the exhibit oh, in those cases will be Donald Trump's own legal filings and his defamation cases. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from Mac Blue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities. Healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country. Immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun. And candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, Neil, I, we have you for for a few more minutes, and and uh, you know, we could talk to you for a long time because this is fascinating. And uh, you know, I think most of us are cynical because we see lack of accountability, right? And we see lack mm-hmm. of accountability when these people are criming openly. You know, Daniel and I on this podcast have openly said that we're not on the select committee, we're not the Justice Department, and just based on what we know from reporting, like this guy's a criminal, right? <laughs> I want to give you a, a one example: uh, the Brad Raffensperger, Secretary of State of Georgia phone call like we've heard it this man is literally donald trump like a mob boss is pressuring the secretary of state to quote find the votes right and so i'm sitting there and i'm thinking okay it's probably maybe i'm too cynical right maybe the justice department won't go after him because he's the president of the united states of america you know nixon didn't go to jail he resigned Mm -hmm. at the state level 
Is there a case for the Georgia district attorney to go after Trump? A hundred percent. And it's looking very good for exactly the evidence that you yep. point to about find me 11,780 votes and what Secretary Raffsenberger said yesterday. I mean, Donald Trump was engaged in a massive criminal scheme for to for election to commit election fraud. And, you know, that's a crime under Georgia state law. And that Georgia prosecutor looks tough and she looks engaged. I think, mm-hmm. you, you know, I think all of us are wondering, you know, why it's taken this long for that piece of the investigation. But look, it's going on and let's see um, where it leads. But, you know, I don't generally like the idea of states indicting federal officials because I always worry that a state could diminish the kind of ability of a national official to do her job. But um, here, when you've got, you know, outright election fraud, of course, um, you know, it's an outright election fraud against Georgia and Georgia should have a remedy. One before we move on to a couple of cases that have bubbled up at the Supreme Court that we want your opinion on, um, Neil, lay out for the democracy-ish audience. What is the consequence of this Justice Department not prosecuting Donald Trump? What happens to our democracy to 2024 um, if they decide, you know what? We're not going there. It's not good for the country, as as we often hear. Yeah, I think after the committee hearings and the evidence that's been shown, it is unthinkable that the Justice Department wouldn't prosecute. Because to do so is to basically say, oh, yeah, it's very cool, very legal to basically, uh, you know, foment an insurrection to create a legal coup, hire all these bogus lawyers with bogus legal theories to, you know, come up with crazy cockamamie theories. And, you know, but for a couple of people, this thing could have all gone sideways. I mean, we're talking about Vice President Pence, who's basically an invertebrate. I mean, unfortunately, he does the right thing once in his (laughs) life on January 6th. I I just want to, on behalf of Amoebas, I just want to say, you know, I'm sorry, Amoebas, that Neil has compared you to Mike Pence. You don't deserve it. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) So I don't think Amoebas are invertebrates, are they? Um, No idea. This is this is getting super nerd This is above conversation. my seventh grade. This is okay, above me, my seventh me, grade. Science. You know, words matter because Neil's an attorney to fellow invertebrates who are listening. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> okay, so, um, so I I think that um, you, you have to because that's the essence of what America's about. I mean, at our best, we are about the rules applying fairly to everyone. You know, every time I walk in to argue a Supreme Court case. I try and walk in the front door because the, the words above the Supreme Court are equal justice under law. That's four words, and it says so much. And I don't know how you have equal justice under law when you've got a president trying to engineer a legal coup through his vice president. Like, that is so corrosive to what the rule of law is about. And here I am just reminded of Judge Michael Ludig's testimony mm. in the hearing because this is a guy who's as conservative as they come. I spent most of my career trying to overturn looting opinions. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was the short, he was on the short list for the Supreme Court. The number two, Justice Alito, got a seat instead, got that seat instead. Um, and here he was really outlining what I'm trying to say. He did it more eloquently than, than I am, but he basically said, you know, what is America about? But this fundamental principle 
And that was under attack on that day. Fortunately, so, you know, Pence's counsel called Ludig for advice. Ludig sends out a bunch of tweets saying this, you know, John Eastman theory is crazy. Mm. And that helps fortify the vice president. I mean, had that set of events not happened, had those mm. wedding tweet, Ludig tweets not happened, I think Pence would have totally done the opposite. And wow. we would be in a completely different world. And also Dan Quell stepped in and advised Mike Pence. Who would have thought that I'm actually saying that that we have to thank the fact that we had a democratic transfer of power thanks to Dan Quell and hard conservative retired Judge Ludig, whose words were damning. And I recommend everyone go back and listen to them. I mean, he was very precise. Mm -hmm. He completely laid to waste John Eastman's theory. He completely laid, laid to waste any rationalization for the coup uh, promoted by Donald Trump and his allies. And he said this is an ongoing constitutional mischief and a major threat to our democracy. It's ongoing. Uh, Neil, we know we, we said we'll keep you for 30 minutes, but if you can stay for just a couple extra minutes, I have to ask you about this case. You know, you talk about equal justice under law, but there's also a concept of equal rights. And specifically with the Supreme Court, we are all waiting with bated breath uh, with the anticipation that this uh, 6-3 court is, or maybe 5-4 court, is going to overturn 50 plus years of the right to privacy and specifically kill Roe v. Wade. Uh, your thoughts about, uh, about the future of Roe? Yeah, so I wrote, I wrote about this in the Washington Post. I think that um, the leak, first of all, is um, unprecedented. We've never had a draft Supreme Court opinion before. When I clerked there, I mean, the idea that even a word from a draft opinion or a hint would leak out would be you know, unthinkable. So to have this happen is just so dramatic. Um, but that draft opinion is frightening and scary. Um, it outlines basically a full-throated reversal of Roe versus Wade, which was a 7 to do 2 decision in 1973 at a time when seven of the nine justices on the Supreme Court were Republican. And what it wow. says is, ah, you know, we can overrule that precedent, even though I think you know, it was a trio of Republican justices in 1992, Justice O'Connor, Souter, and Kennedy, all of whom the kind of Republicans thought, oh, they're going to overrule Roe. They came together and said, no, Roe versus Wade is one of the few decisions Americans know by name. Mm -hmm. If we just overrule mm -hmm. it because we're on the court, as opposed to those other people, it'll look to the American people like we're not doing law. It'll look like we're doing politics. Social expectations, they said, have crystallized around Roe versus Wade. It can't be overruled. And what does this newfound majority of the Supreme Court do? Thumb its nose at all of that and just overrule that. And I guess my view on this, Waj, is if you can overrule Roe, what can't you overrule? I right. mean, you know, because yep. Roe is as yep. canonical as it comes in today's society. So, you know, Griswold versus Connecticut, which, Con you know, establishes the right to privacy and contraception, you know, that's in a way easier to overrule. I mean, we don't have the same, you know, kind of, you know, nobody knows that Griswold case by name. Everyone knows Roe or take one that I care very much about. And, you know, uh, Obergefell, the marriage equality case, yep. which you know I spent four years working on with, you know, as just a minor player in this. There were a lot of amazing attorneys, but, you know. Uh, as moving and a powerful decision by the Supreme Court that has ever, ever been rendered. And, you know, I think they've got their sights set on that. So I think it's an incredibly dangerous, destructive decision um, if it becomes to pass. Um, and, you know, uh, my gut is that it'll be hard for the court to walk that back, that draft back. 
I, I, you know, I, I will say this as we end, I spoke with Oberfeld uh, last week and I said, so what are your thoughts about how we're going to move forward here? And he's like, it ain't good. <laughs> it's not good. And I am scared. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that that is, that's everyone's feelings. Um, Neil, we can't thank you enough for your time. We know that in between this, you have like a million other things to do as well as go again before um, the court. So we just want to say thank you. We appreciate you. Um, and tell folks, I mean, they see you everywhere, so they know where where you're going to be. Where, but where can they buy the Neil Cocktail merch? Uh, yes. I don't know. But I, would, I would definitely recommend Lodge's book. Um, so buy that and, uh, and that'll make me happy. And follow Neil Thank, on Twitter, yeah, go ahead. And, and he yes. he comes up on uh, MSNBC and CNN a lot. And he wrote a book, uh, Impeach, uh, uh, when it came to Donald Trump. And thankfully, they paid attention to his advice. So hopefully, Democrats and the Justice Department, enough folks are reading his New York Times articles and listening to this podcast and will do the right thing. Neil, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for fighting for democracy and the rule of law. We really appreciate it. Thank you for being a good guy. Oh, thank you, my friends. It was a real pleasure to be with both of you. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Mujahat Ali. And we will be back next week if, in fact, there is a country left. Inshallah. Inshallah.